this is Our American Stories. And the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place. And Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies. Because the music is just so astounding and so good. And always suits the purpose. And, again, that's the Godfather soundtrack. We love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians, and even comedians. Our hour on Steve Martin. We urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. There's no precedent for John Cazale. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen, wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then, just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was. After all, he wasn't really a movie star. He was never billed above the title. But John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone. From the Godfather. Yet today, most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction. You know who this guy is? Nope. Nope. Something from the Godfather. He was the oldest one. He was a little slow. They, they sound that betrayed. Yes. Yes. Did he pray? Fr- Fredo? Yeah, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. 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 Do you remember? Do you, do you, do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo. Shoot. Uh, wait. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. Oh, I love this guy too. What was his name? He was very good. Fredo. Yeah, yeah. I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. <laughs> the actors John Cazale supported: Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino and Meryl Streep among them, all said working with John Cazale made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi, Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture, and three of them received the Oscar. Further, he appeared posthumously in archival footage in The Godfather Part Three, 
which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazale was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather 2, where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. When Al arrives in Las Vegas and John is already there and he's got the band set up and the hookers. He does like this kind of, the band is playing, he does this kind of thing and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance. Welcome to Las Vegas. Well, his idea, right? And Al says, get rid of them. Get rid of them, Fredo. Hey, my God. Fredo, I'm here on business. I leave tomorrow and I get rid of them. Time. And the look on his face was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. A whole kind of person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on! That's where John fit in so miraculously because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought possible. In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together, studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself. The idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him. I mean, if you look at John's work, you see how willingly he went to the dark side <laughs> and how capable he was of doing that. John felt very strongly that finding the character, you had to find the pain first where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation and that would translate into positive choices as an actor. I think the artist is born a suffering child and uh, there are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer and I, I don't know exactly what it was. That was John's reason, but I could venture a guess, certainly. It was probably you know, a strong, overbearing father. That was difficult. The life of John Cazale, who died on this day in history, more after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale. And you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. 
Beautiful. And by the way, that, that point that somebody made before, they knew how to find the pain in the character, that was what Gazelle did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Gazelle's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition, 14 of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, the camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake. Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, in our family, he's Salonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo, everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where Brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Diane Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk, but John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux to get eye level with Michael and Kay. How are you, Fredo? Fredo? My brother Fredo, this is Kay Adams. Hi. Hi. Hey, this is my brother Mike. Are you having a good time? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is your friend, huh? <laughs> the whole scene takes 21 seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover and a family of killers. With his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot in front of his son Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. After The Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant 
to an introverted paranoid surveillance consultant in the conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in the conversation. (laughs) He's a nice guy for a cop. I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character. The conversation was a cult film. People already had it on as their favorite film of all time. Especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste, you know, like, it's not The Godfather that I love the most, it's. I would almost bet money that all the actors that worked with him were inspired by what he did on the day. To take it that much further, to be that much more creative or or risky uh, or personal. Because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable in everything he did. And that always makes people go, I think I gotta work a little harder. (laughs) I think I better rethink what I'm doing here. Because this guy's really going for it. This guy's really going for it. And that was Philip Seymour Hoffman, that last clip. John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Cazale in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend. Fredo, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Fredo. He became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions, because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things. Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing. He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John than anybody that's a pretty heady statement that's Al Pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody and he studied with Lee Strasberg and he studied with Uta Hagen the two masters of the New York theater and of film amazing there are moments in each of John Cazale's performances so real so vulnerable that one wonders if he should be watching Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched. I remember when we shot that scene and uh, and, and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary and you know, very definitely the way Casal used the chair because that chair was there and certainly you could slump in it and everything but somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um, I had never anticipated. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? 
you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it! I can handle things, I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb, I'm smart and I want respect. He's such an imp, you know? He's so irresponsible and it'd be so desperate. He's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. A heartbreaking scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a ter totally antisocial, probably terrible man. And Cazal uh, broke your heart. He really let himself out there. He's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor is going to want to play Sonny or Michael, you know? They're not going to want to play Fredo. You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm. So you want to say, look how talented I am. Weakness is something that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll, they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that. And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends. We do it with our family members. And I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale. One of the great actors you know but don't know. Who changed, I believe, and I know Greg who helped and did this piece. We've changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America. More after these messages. talking about John Cazale for the hour and we love talking about art here on our American stories and music and what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting so there's the writing there's that human talent almost that operatic talent of the actor and then of course there's the music and again one day we're going to be putting together and I hope real soon just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. 
When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting. And began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history, and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazell knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and at least once punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow we have affection for each of these men or at least an acceptance of them. And that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon. Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon, he's so... Um, You're the manager? He's so strange looking, you know, a really intense face. And then, you know, the, the receding hair, uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong. I remember we were casting and Sidney Lament wanted a, a 19-year-old boy. To, he thought that would be very important and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it. And Al kept asking me to uh, to read John. So of course Sydney, I would think, well, John, that's not what I'm thinking. John Cassell, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in. I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. 
And it was just the most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. I mean, I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that character, oh, man. Everything he did, the hair, that, yeah. the movement. Bill, come with me. Watch him. Sit down, sit down. The intensity. Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it. Stay right there! Gazelle is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies. Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas. I bark. That man there, see him? He bites. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm listen, telling you, there's a way out of this. Were you serious about what you said? About what? About throwing... About throwing those bodies out the door. That's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. No, I don't know what you think. Because I'll tell you right now, I'm ready to do it. Well, I'll tell you something. When he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He, he provides that. It's right there, those eyes. It's like they cut to him a lot in that movie, and it's... It's because he's got that, he's got the stakes. And Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up. There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken. Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Gazelle. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie, in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them. Then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script, and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater, and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make, how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said, for the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors, and it's an emotional blueprint, and there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazell could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see On the Waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. 
like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. Friends say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him as it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. He is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazell's performance in Dog Day Afternoon. There isn't a sadder character than, than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious. Sal! Sal! What? Where are you? And it's not about funny lines at all. It's just, uh, I mean, from the haircut to the... Everything everything about it is comic. Now, you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. One of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected. It was an improvised moment. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No, Wyoming. This not a country. That's all right. I, I'm going to take care of it. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know that the take was almost ruined because I started to laugh, but I, thank God, didn't wreck the soundtrack. And Al almost broke up. You know, that's a laugh. If you want to get a laugh there, he would no more go for that, you know. And so because of that, it's just instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that and you are forced into this sort of anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was always something tragic in it. And he, even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny. The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that, that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day happened. Yeah, you'd start a scene and then, you know, it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum. And so he would just say, what'd you do today, Al? After I just said a line to him, you know, he said, you seem like you, uh, you said you were going to go to someone's, and he would get you there. 
and you would just do this dance until you found your way, and then the improvisations would start, which was, and then the improvisations would go, and when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was, he'd start to see. God, it was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John just give it a couple of minutes, and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing? How's he do that? No. What's the matter with you? You made me a promise. Didn't you? Did you promise me something, huh? Yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say but that? But I'm not talking. Did I'm, you? I'm not talking about that. I do believe. Do you believe in keeping your promises? Huh? Yeah, but I'm not talking. Does it still go? Yeah, it still goes. But what the f are you talking about? Other actors either, you know, rose to the occasion and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation, and uh, John gets a big assist. He just, he constantly made him better and better. It was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got a, you got inspired by it. So you did it. You went, it, he made you better. After dog day afternoon, Gazelle, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama, The Deer Hunter starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Gazelle was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Gazelle were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him, but Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film. It was going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot. Shoot, Nicky. I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors, and I was reading with some actors. At one point, uh, he wanted to use John, and, and there was an issue about his being not well. John Cazale had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if, if you die halfway through um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you. And Bob De Niro went to bat for John. He won't tell me because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation. He was... Uh, sicker than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it. So Bob put his money down and got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Oh hey, stars. Hey! 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 Look at this! Hey! Mikey! Hey, hey, man, how you doing? All right. Hey, where was you? Where was you? Where, where was I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there. The beer, the fried axle. Am I right? Huh? Got a mustache. Yeah. Hey, he looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that, that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie. I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting. Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me, let me your boots. Let me your boots. And uh, De Niro's like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Friend. You're some friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? Nah! He says, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. 
This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Hey, you know your trouble, my kind? Nobody ever knows what the f*** you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this. You can watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved. And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before The Deer Hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend, and again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But the most amazing thing to see was Meryl during all of this, and the way she was with him and by his side right, right through the whole thing. Meryl, she was with him to the end, and she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was... I so admired how, how she behaved. It was, it was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days. When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's, that's it for me, as great as she is in all her work. That's what I think of when I think of her, that moment. That's what I think of. Here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend. I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway. And it was a really great role. And I had, I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, I remember John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this. I'm saying this. I'm not doing this. I'm trying to impress John. Yeah. And uh, it was over. And I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done it. And John came back. <laughs> and he said, it's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. I thought, yes, John. I said, you know what? I said, he was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I, I said, you know, I, I, I knew you were there, and I was trying to, I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good, Al. It was good. It was good. He said, you don't know. You don't realize that, you know, you've been there. But I knew I had. So I was very, you know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was... That's, that's you give all out, and that's the worst thing you can do, is try to impress your, your friends who you love. Yeah, imagine how good John Cazell was, though. Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him. Here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi. I had a really weird experience, uh, surreal. I did uh, a voice on uh, The Simpsons, where I played a bank robber. So I'm watching The Simpsons when it aired, and my partner, they, they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled. I was like, oh my God, I'm acting with John. I don't know, I just, I like really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor and this proves it, you know? Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation 
when he called his friend, quote, a small perfection. And so he was. And in his films, so he is. The Life of John Cazale. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with The Godfather. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our next story comes from Christy Stone Hamrick and her piece in Life Set about something we all think about and all probably think we don't do enough of. Exercise. Here's her unique take. Yeah! Oh, hello. I'm White Goodman, owner, operator, and founder of Globo Gym America Corp. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be stuck with what you got. Hey, Rory. Looking good. Here at Globo Gym, we understand that ugliness and fatness are genetic disorders, much like baldness or necrophilia. And it's only your fault if you don't hate yourself enough to do something about it. And that's where we come in. <laughs> At least that's the running monologue playing out in more media outlets than we can completely ignore. Get in my belly! Come on! But somewhere along the journey from childhood to retirement, the solution to that problem has become the New Year's resolution that almost everyone makes and almost everyone hates. Exercise more. As children, playing outside was the reward, not the punishment. Now you're all in big, big trouble. So much so that a ridiculous trend in too many elementary schools today is for children to be deprived of outside playtime in a stationary timeout at recess as punishment. Work, 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 everyone. Because we all know that the one thing that helps discipline a hyperactive child to be calm is enforced stillness. Go stand in the corner. Or not. Yet trudging through the institutional world of education, exercise became the thing that the quintessential sadistic gym teacher enforced. Those that can't do, teach. And those that can't teach, teach gym. Complete with tests, metrics, and goals for the unattainable. The joy of movement dimmed as the realization that perfection was just not on the menu for most of us grew. And there was the math to prove it. Charts, indexes, measurements, graphs, all calculated to show the weary where they fall short. Exercise stopped being many people's entertainment when it stopped being fun. I can't be the only person who finds modern-day conversations about exercise about as compelling as a marketing report full of deliverables and metrics, or like a performance review by a cranky boss who won't notice the 10 things you did right, but only the one thing you did wrong. Here we are. Look. This is fitness. These things are correlates, maybe components, but absolutely positively subordinate to what happens here. You with me? I already live in a world of deadlines and demands. Whether at home or at work, I must comply with so many requirements that I cannot bear to take up an activity that has a to-do list. Monica, it's Sunday morning. I'm not running on a Sunday. Why not? Because it's Sunday. <laughs> it's God's day. 
You say stop, and we stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> stop. In fact, a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research reported that even when people were paid to go to the gym, most were not motivated to do so. No, come on, we can't stop. Come on, we got three more pounds to go. I am the energy train, and you are on board. I'll say that line again. Most were not motivated to do it. Money could not camouflage the reality that many have lost that love and feeling for organized pain. You know, I try to stay positive. So you, you feel like going for a run? <laughs> Because you know you don't have to. If you want, you could just take a nap right here. Okay. And when the sales pitch is no pain, no gain, how surprising is it that many people just say no? Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. As my own children reach adulthood, I listen to their conversations about how they should exercise if only they had the time. Should stands doomed in the English language, a verbal storeroom for closets we don't want to clean or vegetables we don't want to eat. Uh, you know we really should quit. Okay, let's quit. Yes, great. <laughs> as soon as you should do something, you don't want to do it. Hey, hey. Uh oh, busted. <laughs> Rachel, we tried to quit, but it was too hard. In today's competitive school environments, the emphasis can be so much on winning that coaches don't want to spend time with kids in general, but rather a specific few. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. So they call every team to yeah. the top players. A coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Forgotten is the beautiful model of days past, called my childhood, in which every kid could come out to practice and to participate with the team. Hey, buddy, hold up, man. While only a deserving and talented few suited up on game day. Don't you understand, man? If you don't cool it out there, you're going to end up getting yourself killed. If I cool it, I won't be helping you guys get ready for the next week's game. Got it. The team was bigger than the perfect, and the fun of training together was its own reward. If you need a reminder of that, watch the movie Rudy with a box of tissues. You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. I am a proud member of the track B team, and will probably live longer for it. The A team intensified their performances and ran until they were sick in the grass, striving for excellence. Admirable to be sure. But on the B team, we jogged on the track, rarely so intensely that we couldn't keep the conversation running, and got out of school on the day of the meets to run a few races and cheer on the winners. Staying in shape in the context of community was the draw. Recently, I rediscovered running. Which for me means faster than walking at a pace most likely to be the worst in any timed race. I don't want to train for anything, achieve anything, or set a record. What I like best about running is that I'm not working. I wonder if more people would overlook the fact that they're exercising if they could remember that it used to be fun outside. It feels a bit un-American to tell people don't go for the gold, but I suspect that more people would try getting active if it sounded less like work and a lot more like a reward. You want to play me? Outside, you get a break from work, chores, family, computers, and responsibilities. Take a page from your five-year-old self 
and have a moment of fun where the sun is shining. And don't let the fact that some will label your activity exercise ruin it. And that's Christy Stone Hamrick's story about exercise here on Our American Stories. And great job as always on that one, Greg. is our american stories and we love our american dreamer series we brought you a lot of them stories of entrepreneurs who've overcome really difficult odds to create companies create jobs create a tax base it's the american dream folks getting out there and starting something whether you're steve jobs or whether you've got the local auto body shop and you're employing some people and doing what you love a restaurant whatever and as always our american dreamer series are brought to us by the great folks at job creators network who are out there fighting for public policies that make sense for helping small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. And today's story, like so many of them, is a real stemwinder because growing a business is no duck walk, and they face mortal, mortal moments where they think everything's lost. We think they're as good as police procedurals, these stories. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story on a member of the Job Creators Network, Bob Luddy, the founder of Captivare, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And this story is a real stem winder. If you think about people that come into the company today, they see a very prosperous company. That's all they know about the company. If you go back to the early days, you'd have a, quite a different picture and that every day was, can we survive one more day? That was the mission every single day. In the early 80s, we were in somewhat of a recession. We switched our payroll to monthly. I thought if we paid at the end of the month, surely we would be able to collect enough money during the month where payroll will not be an issue. Well, it turned out it was a big issue June 30th, 1980, because we had a $30,000 payroll with $2,000 in the bank. I even think back and I wonder how I finessed this. Basically, I told the employees, which was about 18 in number, that we were not able to make our payroll today for technical reasons. That's all I told them. And they mostly went along with it. They really didn't cause a lot of grief about it. So Monday went by, no money, and then Tuesday night, I had already received the mail. I decided to go back to the post office at 8 p.m. And there was a check for $28,000 from the Golden Corral, almost precisely to the dollar what I needed to make that payroll. So essentially, I was bailed out by a major customer who, in this case, paid their bill early. Go figure. It speaks very highly of your employees that they didn't really ask what the technical reason was. I, I'm pretty sure my wife would have uh, asked, what do, you, what do you mean a technical reason? Like, <laughs> you earned that money and I have bills to pay here. Didn't you ask him what the technical reason was? You know, in a modern context, I can't even imagine that I could get away with that. I mean, people would be crazy. But somehow we did. Bob writes in his book, I'd done everything humanly possible to save the company. 
So now, all that remained was the grace of God. I mean, I have a great trust in God that if we do our part and we ask for help, He will provide that help. And I think if I didn't have that belief in God, it would be a lot harder to function in the marketplace. One of the things I think you find very interesting in the market is that these companies that are Christian-based, Chick-fil-A is maybe a primary example, they're enormously successful in the market. People admire them, and people want to do business with them. In our construction business, a lot of things go on that shouldn't go on, and we've never participated in them. One of our veteran sales guys called me one day and said, Bob, I figured out why we're so successful. I said, well, tell me why. He says, because we're a legitimate company. We do things honestly, correctly. We don't play games. And the marketplace appreciates the way we do business. I went, hallelujah. And if you think about today, the trouble individuals get into because they violate human decency, basic Ten Commandments, common law, is enormous. Conversely, the ones who are legitimate just continue to do better and better all the time because that's what the market wants. That's who they're going to do business with. Lessons that Bob began learning not too long after coming out of the womb. His Pennsylvania family didn't have much money and had 10 mouths to feed. It was competitive even in eating because we had a limited amount of food. So you better be at the table and get your share or you may end up short of food that day. So to get money, Bob had to make his own. Starting in elementary school, he delivered newspapers, shoveled snow, and babysat. And at age 11, he was working on a bread truck on weekends. Eventually worked in the drugstore during high school. The pharmacist was my mentor, teaching me the basic skills of business, uh, retail, inventory, delivery, dealing with customers who are difficult. Uh, it's almost as if I should have been paying him. This idea of first job is much more important in terms of learning life skills than actually making any money. And yet it's been turned around now that you should be paid a minimum of $15 an hour. Well, I don't know what $0.85 cents an hour would be today, maybe 10 bucks. Actually, it would be even less, $7.15. If minimum wage were $15, I never got that job. It would have made a profound, profoundly negative impact on my life. So I think that very, very often in modern contexts, whether it's the news media, consultants, academics, they really turn life upside down. And if you think about it, when I grew up in the 50s, life was a little different, a little bit less regulated. You couldn't work on a bread truck today at age 11. They, put mom in jail for child abuse. But it was an important part of my life. Nobody got hurt. Everybody seemed to be a winner. So allowing parents to make decisions and allowing individuals to find the best that they can within the market they exist is important. And it's precluded now by massive regulation, misconceptions, etc. Bob went on to college, and he didn't particularly want to. He didn't like school. 
But his dad wanted all the kids to go, so that's what he did. And after two years, he really wanted to get out. So this 20-year-old decided that buying into a fiberglass business was what he ought to do to stay sane. Fast forward nine years, by this time, Bob had been drafted into the Vietnam War, forced to sell his company to serve, and now was married and working in L.A. until he just couldn't stand the traffic any longer. And so he researched the areas of the country most likely to grow economically, and they'd move to one of them. And he chose Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a leap. I had no contacts, no job, didn't know anybody. When I got here, I thought, maybe this wasn't the smartest idea in the world. Bob applied to every single job that was listed in the newspaper. And after two months of this, someone finally called and offered him an opportunity to sell fire suppression systems to restaurants. He did well, purchased their first home, and had his first kid until the CEO made a Sunday announcement to the sales team. Our pay was going to get cut about one-third. So I was making 30000 a year. Now I'm going to make 20000 a year. And my initial thought was I ought to be able to make 20000 a year on my own. Starting his own similar business. The second thought was I'm not well prepared. I don't have capital. I should have been more prepared for this day, but I'm, I'm not. And then I had a third thought, essentially said, look, there's times in your life when you have to take major risks, and this is one of those times. And if you fail to take that risk, other opportunities may come along, but this is your time to go. I think one of the things that came out of that is the fact that knowing that the, the risks were extremely high, I knew I'd have to go to all extreme possible efforts to make this thing work. I decided to use my home phone so I didn't have to do anything there. I got some business cards printed, and by Saturday, I made my first installation. So from Sunday, working for a company, to the following, the end of the week, I went from being employed to being self-employed. The nature of how I learned to do things, particularly for my mother, is She called it, tomorrow never comes, meaning that if you're not doing it today, you're probably never going to do it, even today. I do it today, I do it immediately. If it's a good idea, I want to hear about it now, versus the bureaucratic mind that says, yeah, we're going to do that, I'll put on my list, I'll contemplate it. I'm much more of a person of action. And so that action allowed us to get underway right away. And the first check I received from the Saturday installation bounced. And when we come back, more of this American Dreamer's story, Bob Luddy's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American Dreamers segment, Bob Luddy and the founder of Captive Air, 
the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And by the way, we heard some really remarkable stories about how we almost didn't make it. Well, we continue now with the story. He's already shaken up one industry, and a few unintentional experiences would lead him to try and shake up another. I had a woman who worked part-time taking care of my children after school, and she needed some more work, so I told her to come over to the office. We didn't really know what to do with her, so we, I said, well, have her do filing. So someone came to me and said, well, she's not able to do filing. And I said, no, come on, anybody can do filing. Just show her how to do it, she'll be fine. And what we figured out is she didn't know her ABCs. So that was my first inkling that I was clueless. Later on in our shop, we realized that individuals could use a tape measure if it was increments of one inch. But if it was one inch and one sixteenth, they couldn't read it conceptually. They didn't understand it. And I thought, how, how is it possible that someone could graduate from high school, but they couldn't do fractions? They didn't understand fractions. That was my second clue. And I thought, as a society, this is a disgrace. Because we always say that we love our children, we want the best for them, we want them to have good education. But we support a public school system that only really educates about 25% of the students and culturally destroys close to 100% of them. So Bob decided to do something about it. First, he took up North Carolina's Education Commission on becoming their co-chairman. My take-home was that academics will discuss any topic ad nauseum, but they have no intention of really changing. They just like academic discussions. So at some point that came to an end without any great success. And so Bob decided to try something else. In 1997, I ran for school board as a reform candidate. I won the first round, but in the second round, narrowly lost, which turned out to be a great blessing. And I decided to open a public charter school. Charter schools are public schools that are allowed more freedom to innovate. In the first weeks when I announced that we were going to have Franklin Academy, one of the local school board members came to me with me and he said, well, I want to inform you that nobody's going to go to your school except a few malcontents and misfits, and there'll be darn few of those. But we opened with 160 kids. Even better, the students liked it. They loved coming to school. So as we went forward, our waiting list began to grow. The state law requires that you have a lottery for admission. A game of chance where students are chosen at random. In year two, we began the lottery, and it grew to over 2,000 students. There are four kids on the waiting list for every one seat that is available, which means that only 25% of them will win the lottery, and 75% of them will be declared losers. Losers who are forced to go to some other school that they don't want to go to. I think it's just illustrative of tremendous 
pent-up demand. In business, we would call it a very strong market signal. That almost, more than any other point, describes the extreme frustration and dissatisfaction with the public school system. Bob being Bob hoped to serve these kids that the lottery declared losers by opening more charter schools so that no child would be left behind. But the government wouldn't allow him to. The charter school bill only allowed for 100 charters. By the mid-2005, all 100 were out. You couldn't get more charters. So yet again, Bob tried something else that once again in no way benefited his family. So I met with a small group of parents in 06, talked about the idea of a private school. So by 07, I opened Thales Academy with 20 kids in our corporate office. It's now grown to 2,600 students, six campuses, and we have five campuses currently under development. And my goal was to create a large private school network that would prove there is a better way. Our theme is high quality, affordable, which essentially in the private school world doesn't exist. So we picked $5,000 for K-5 as a tuition 10 years ago. We have not raised that tuition in 10 years. For context, Washington, D.C.'s public schools cost $30,000 a kid. Many top private schools are $20,000 a student. North Carolina's public schools are $9,300 a student. And Bob's Thales Academy is almost half that. Now, from a financial management standpoint, it's a formidable task. You have all these myths of small class size. When I went to high school, there was... 50-plus students in every class. It was a pretty darn good high school. So I know from firsthand experience that having 50 kids in a classroom doesn't make a darn bit of difference. Those same students, when they go to college, might be in a class of 100 or 200 or 300. Nobody's concerned about it. So the concept of small class basically is a union idea to create more jobs and make life easier on the teachers. So one of the things we have to do is have a reasonable class size, which we describe between 20 and maybe 30 at the outside. We have to eliminate every potential inefficiency. So in a K-5 building, we have an administrator and an assistant administrator, and everybody else is teaching. That allows for tremendous efficiencies. Whereas in public schools, For every single teacher that they have, there's a whole other employee not teaching. Only half of their staff are actually teaching. And to conclude, I had to ask Bob, why is he still running this company and launching schools at his age? The guy's in his 70s, and he's had this wildly successful career. Shouldn't he be on a golf course somewhere? You know, for, for many individuals who go into business, they aspire to get rich, retire, and enjoy the money. Obviously, I want to make money, but the things that money produces, mostly I'm not interested. So I'm not a sportsman. I don't care to, to go on exotic vacations. 
I actually love the work. I love building the business. The money is not all that important to me, even though it is the way you keep score for any business. Uh, one of my uh, associates some years ago said, you have more money to spend than anybody we know, and you spend the least amount of anybody we know. And, and the reason is that money isn't my goal. My goal is to create a great company, to have the opportunity to work with amazing people. That, to me, is my life. Going on an exotic vacation has no interest to me whatsoever. Having some exotic sports car has no interest. I believe that as your life goes on, I'm 72, your greatest contributions are coming later in life because you have this tremendous amount of experience. You've got a whole company behind you that you didn't have all those years. So the opportunity to serve is enormous in that time frame. To put yourself off the playing field, for me, doesn't make sense. And what a story. And we've heard this story again and again from our American dreamers, from our entrepreneurs. It's not the money. It's a scorecard. But it's the jobs. It's the company culture. It's the meaning that work brings to people's lives. Our American Dreamer segment brought to us by Job Creators Network. Bob Luddy's story. Captivaire's story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, very little politics, which I know you're relieved to hear about. But my goodness, our kids, our families, and what we're doing out there in America. Well, an article caught my attention, How to Win a High School Debate, Talk Like a Cattle Auctioneer. And it was written by Daniel Kruger in the Wall Street Journal, and Daniel joins us now. Daniel, thanks. Thank you. Hey, talk about what got you into this story, because uh, often there's a family connection. Yes, yeah, so that, that was true in my case. My uh, older son is a high school debater, and, and this year he began doing um, Lincoln-Douglas debating. And as a parent, you know, they need volunteer judges to, to go and, and help out. And so that was me, and I, I started uh, judging LD debating this year and uh, was quite surprised by what I heard. And so this, uh, the setting of this piece is Lexington, Massachusetts, and as a journalist now, you're covering this. What brought you to Lexington? Well, there's a big high school debate in Lexington every year. So that's what I was there to do. I was there to judge and, and also, you know, as, as a reporter to, to watch a few rounds and, and, you know, to write about what I saw. And who, are, who is Lincoln and Douglas? For folks who, they might know Lincoln, but they don't know Douglas. And why are these debates in this format called Lincoln-Douglas? Sure. So back in 1858, um, Abraham Lincoln, who was then uh, just a, a former one-term congressman from Illinois, uh, ran against a great and powerful senator from Illinois, uh, Stephen Douglas, uh, for a Senate seat that year. And they held a series of seven debates um, across the state. Um, and each debate, you know, took about a total of, uh, you know, three hours or so where uh, each speaker would get up and, and, and give, you know, a couple long uh, speeches where, and then they'd rebut each other. And um, this, you know, series of debates, you know, became one of the more famous uh, attempts at, uh, you know, mass persuasion in, in American history. 
And so these, the, those debates lasted how long? The original Lincoln-Douglas debates, what was the kind of time they had? What was their format? So the first speaker would get up and make a speech lasting of uh, about an hour, and then he would be followed by the second speaker, who would give a rebuttal, which would last for an hour and a half. And then the um, first speaker would speak um, you know, with a, a final statement that would last about half an hour. So they'd each speak for about an hour and a half at, at each of these debates. And so let's talk about these versions, uh, your, your son, obviously, and all of the other young people. By the way, debating as a participation sport in high schools is up a remarkable 12%. From 2014, I'm going to ask you why in a minute, but something tells me this has something to do with it. It's the speed. What is the format with the current Lincoln-Douglas debate? Okay, so um, there are two debaters. Um, they each speak, you know, for themselves. There are other forms of debate where where you speak with a partner, but in, in Lincoln-Douglas, you're speaking on your own for yourself. And um, the first speaker will get up and make a six-minute um, constructive speech, and then the second speaker will uh, make a seven-minute rebuttal. Um, and the first speaker will have uh, four minutes to, to make uh, a response to that rebuttal. The second speaker will have six minutes, and then the first speaker gets the final three minutes in the debate, and they each uh, get a total of about 13 minutes speaking time, not including uh, a brief period where they each get to cross-examine each other. And here's where it gets interesting. I'm going to quote from you, and I know writers don't love their words being quoted at them, but here we go anyway. To impress judges, they had to pack into that brief time arguments of intellectual depth and complexity complete with citations of legal scholars or philosophers any point left unrebutted could be deemed conceded every word had to be read aloud for the judges to score it the result was speech at roughly the pace of a cattle auctioneer Mm -hmm. talk about what talents this takes to both process the arguments and go really fast well it's it's really difficult um to, uh, to to do you know to speak at that pace much less to hear it um, what they do um, is they'll start um, learning how to speak fast in debate camp they'll often spend you know three or four weeks uh, over the summer at a debate camp where they are um, taught how to speak fast and, and in the process of speaking that fast they also learn how to listen that fast and um, the listening takes a little longer to arrive at than the speaking does because you can hear a lot of stuff but it's hard to really um, understand words when they're spoken at that speed. I mean, I've been judging debate now for four months and I've heard, um, you know, dozens of, of speeches at that pace and I can understand maybe 90% of what they're saying. So it's it's definitely a time-consuming process to learn to hear that fast. And um, the kids will you know, do all sorts of um, exercises. They'll, um, some will speak with, you know, pencils uh, gritted between their teeth. They'll read forwards and backwards. They'll, um, you know, uh, they'll read like Dr. Seuss uh, things as fast as they can, like Fox and Socks. And um, it's it's just a, a real, you know, boot camp, not just in terms of learning how to, you know, think, you know, logically and quickly on your feet and how to, you know, make and rebut an argument, but how to do it at a speed that, you know, is like a cattle auctioneer. What is the word spreading? Because that's a technique, it sounds like, a lot of these young kids are using and young people are using to do just this, talk like a cattle auctioneer. Right. So the word spreading um, has uh, an unknown you know, origin, but uh, people seem to think that it comes from um, speed and reading, a blend of those two, uh, two words. And, um, and essentially, it's just the, the process of speaking at a pace that is roughly you know, 300 words a minute. Um, and it's something that uh, some people don't like. Some people 
you know, thinks that it is against the spirit of, you know, a persuasive debate where you, you know, should be able to convince anybody who, you know, happens to walk by uh, about, you know, what it is that you're trying to, you know, argue. Uh, but it, observers, you know, say that when they can't understand the words, you know, how can they possibly be persuaded? Indeed. And, and so who is Coach Stanton? He's not your typical coach. He's certainly not as old as most coaches. And he's featured in this piece. Who is he? Where does he go to school? And why do people pay him? Well, uh, John Stanton is a um, physics major at Columbia University, and he had been a champion debater at uh, the Bronx High School of Science in New York. And um, he is a debate coach. He teaches, you know, kids uh, both at debate camp and then um, on his own, uh, where he, you know, will uh, get paid by um, by debaters who who want to improve on their technique and and on their, you know, argumentation skills. He'll get, uh, you know, paid. Um, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollars uh, per, you know, argument that he helps on. You know, his job is to, you know, help you in terms of your technique, in terms of speaking fast, and then he also, you know, helps in terms of, you know, the thought process. How are you going to argue this case um, that, that you have to debate? Um, he um, keeps track of the opponents that uh, you may face in, in an upcoming debate round, and he'll know something about how they um, argue, you know, their cases and what cases they kind of like to run so that he can help you uh, make the most uh, effective strategic decisions, you know, when you're facing them in a round. Well, the good news is this keeps kids off the streets, right? And, <laughs> yes, it definitely does. Anytime yeah. we can do that, that's a plus. Um, just a, a factoid that you had in here, Mr. Staunton was so good at what he did that JetBlue got him to record a Facebook ad. We're going to play it right now. Getting up to speed on 100 JetBlue cities. You're getting from London to Florida, Buffalo, New York, Tampa, Florida, Atlanta, Washington, Florida, Washington, New York, Oakland, California, Berlin, Tampa, Mars, Palm Beach, Florida, Salt Lake City, Utah, Mars, Florida, Seattle, Washington, Syracuse, New York, Denver, Colorado, New Orleans, Louisiana, Palm Beach, California, Washington, Seattle, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Las Vegas, Nevada, San Diego, California, Oregon, Puerto Rico, San Diego, Dominican Republic, San Jose, California, New York, California, Phoenix, Arizona, Nashville, Bahamas, Portland, Oregon, Florida, California, Washington, Puerto Rico, New York, New Jersey, Austin, Texas, Virginia, 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 Texas, Florida, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Charlotte, North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Houston, Texas, Aruba, Sarasota, Florida, Cape Cod, Mexico, New York, New York, Chicago, Illinois, San Francisco, California, Westchester County, New York, Barbuda, Albany, New York, Beach, Florida, Palm Springs, California, Quito, Ecuador, National Tennessee, Santa Clara, Cuba, Cuba, Hogan, Cuba, and Havana, Cuba. And that was 100 destinations, 282 proper nouns in 68 seconds. Not bad. Something weird happened there. His voice went up and then down and then up. Talk about that high pitch and what happens with people as they do this spreading. Well, you know, you're trying to get the words out as quickly as you can, and you not only have the challenge of saying the words and knowing what it is that you're trying to say, but, uh, you know, as you inhale and exhale, you know, you are, you know, gaining and losing oxygen. And one of the things that can happen is as you continue to talk, the longer you talk and the less oxygen you have in your lungs, the higher your voice gets. And um, this can be a problem for, for people, and, and you just need to work on... Um, 
you know, work on controlling that, and that's one of the things that they practice, you know, trying to speak as clearly and, and, and loudly as possible, because um, in debate rounds, sometimes the judges will, you know, ask you to speak more clearly, um, which, uh, you know, can be a problem when you're speaking at 300 words a minute. And so, you know, you have to, you know, work on modulating your tone as well as, you know, saying things quickly and, and you know, getting it right. And one of the things I think is remarkable about this is people from every class, every racial and ethnic variation, and people from all over the country come together. You had outlined a competition between a Camille Caldera of Bethesda and Ari Asbel of Orlando. These two would have never met otherwise, and they're not athletes. So this is a great way to bring people who care more about the scholastic side of things to actually compete. It's just it's such a great thing. It absolutely is. And these tournaments, um, you know, many of them draw, you know, competitors from across the country. At the Lexington debate, there were students there from California, as well as, you know, Florida and Maryland, Massachusetts. Um, they really, you know, come from all over for these big debates. And uh, the the last big event of the year is going to be the Tournament of Champions in um, Kentucky. So you're going to have a whole bunch of high school debaters from around the world descending on Kentucky, um, where, you know, the best of the best are going to be competing. Well, that's exciting. We love to follow this. Maybe one time, if you could record your son's debate, we'd love to bring you back and let folks hear what that sounds like. And maybe we talk to your son about what this is like. We're talking, by the way, with Daniel Kruger, the Wall Street Journal piece, How to Win a High School Debate. Talk like a cattle auctioneer. And Daniel, thanks for all you do. Well, thank you so much for having me on. You bet.